Welcome to Voices in My Head, the official podcast of me, Rick Lee James. I'm a recording artist, a singer, songwriter, an author, a worship leader, and an ordained minister in the Church of the Nazarene. The Voices in My Head podcast is your source for discussions on music, literature, movies, pop culture, theology, and more. Now sit back, relax, and listen to the latest episode of the Voices in My Head podcast. And don't forget to let the voices in your head be heard by following me on Twitter at Rick Lee James and sharing your thoughts about today's show. First Blood is one of the first novels to deal with what we now call PTSD. The novel about John Rambo and Sheriff Teasel brilliantly dealt with PTSD in a way that was non-political while practically inventing what we now know as the action thriller. A number of movies about Rambo were filmed as a result, and he became a pop culture icon, even being mentioned by President Ronald Reagan during his time in office. The fascinating thing to me is that Rambo was never really intended to be an action hero that glorified violence. The novel was actually quite the opposite, dealing with what happens when a person brings the war home with them. But like so many great literary creations, Rambo took on a life of his own and became much bigger than anyone would have dreamed when the novel First Blood was released. Since its publication in 1972, it has never been out of print, a tribute to how timeless it really is. Well, my guest this week on Voices in My Head is the author of First Blood, David Morrell. In addition to writing First Blood, he's also known for his acclaimed thrillers, including The Brotherhood of the Rose, Creepers, Murder as a Fine Art, and he's also written for Spider-Man and Captain America for Marvel Comics, which is kind of like an icon writing other icons. So today, I want to talk with David about the books, the movies, and the music that have influenced him to become the great creator that he is. David Morell, welcome back to the Voices in My Head podcast. Hey, it's good to be back. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. I'm so glad you could join us here today. I especially was excited because I was hoping we'd get to talk a little bit about Rod Serling because I'm a Rod Serling fan too. But I would be remiss if if I didn't just do a quick uh, conversation as we begin. I had a question for you that I heard you address on a different podcast, and I'd love to hear you uh, if you'd like to talk to this. Um, I had heard that one time Sylvester Stallone called you and gave you just a little bit of an apology of sorts about the way that he had treated the character of Rambo, feeling that maybe he didn't quite ever get it right with the novel. Would you want to share a little of that story with us as we begin? Yeah, it, it, it needs a little more elaboration. On occasion, Sly calls me, uh, not often, every couple of years. Uh, and it's usually, you know, to talk about the character. And um, he had called me when the fourth film was about to come out, and I didn't have anything to do with with the movie. Um, But uh, he called me to explain the background, and what he said was that, in retrospect, he felt that the second and third films uh, had glamorized the violence in a way that uh, wasn't constructive, and uh, that he wanted to do the fourth film uh, in a way that captured, we tried to capture the tone of the novel First Blood, which has differences with the film. Uh, the film makes Rambo to be a victim, 
and the character in my novel, uh, remember it was published in 1972 as the Vietnam War was really falling apart, <clears throat> the character is really angry. Uh, he's angry at what he, at the war. He's he's angry at what he discovered about himself that he was capable of killing people, uh, and uh, he's uh, like a slow fuse uh, in the novel. And uh, Sylvester thought that that character would be uh, something that he'd like to explore in that fourth film. Uh, so that uh, you you have um, you have him uh, constantly standing in the rain, or uh, he's washing himself all the time. He's rinsing his hands. It's like he can't get the blood off him. And uh, there there are many many speeches in the film. Depending on which version, we're talking now about the fourth movie called Rambo. Sure. Um, which I call Rambo 4, just so it isn't confusing. Right. Um, but depending on which version you you know, there was a theatrical version. Uh, there was a director's cut version on DVD, which is very good. Um, and there was uh, a, a, another version um, on DVD. Uh, uh, speeches disappeared. Uh, so in the theatrical version, R Rambo says, as he's making the weapon that he's going to take with him into uh, Burma, Myanmar, as it's now called, he says uh, in his mind, as he's hammering at the forge, he says, admit it, you didn't kill for your country, you killed for yourself, and for that, God will not forgive you. Uh, and the point is the rage that he found within himself that made him possible to be a killer. Hmm. Uh, he's based in a certain way on Audie Murphy, who was the most decorated soldier of World War II and had intense anger problems. Um, so that, that's basically the, the background. What, what he said was that rather than go for the glorification in the second and third films, which I, which I wasn't involved with, um, that he wanted to do a Sam Peckinpah version of a Rambo film, hmm. uh, in which it would, it would be very clear that uh, violence hurts. Uh, and in the final gun battle, uh, there are uh, homages to the climax of the Wild Bunch, where, in effect, uh, Sly is assuming poses that William Holden assumes when he's holding a machine gun and he's been wounded and, and he's struggling to aim while he's been wounded. And, and Sly, uh, you know, did a did a imitation of that, uh, clearly, uh, I thought, indicating uh, his intentions. So that, that was the background. I mean, if you look at it, there's the Rambo in the novel. There's the Rambo in the movie, the first movie. Sure. The second and third movies have a different Rambo again, and the fourth film has a Rambo that goes back to the novel. So, you know, it's a, it's a complicated uh, progression. Sure. Well, that's just fascinating to hear, though. But um, I'm glad that he uh, kind of came to that realization, too, because I do think that it strikes a little closer um, to your original novel, which I love, and I, I revisit almost every year. I, I've been going back for the last few years. And oh, thank you. I, I just think it's, it's wonderfully written. I even have an audio version now, so I can hear it in my car when I'm taking trips. Um, well, it's... Yeah, the, uh, brilliant did a did an audio it you know it's worth pointing out because people say oh how can i get a hardback and the original first edition is you know sometimes for five hundred dollars wow. uh, but gauntlet press uh, has done a um a limited 
collector's edition. It came out two years ago. Uh, only 552 copies um, with all kinds of extras, including the never-published first chapter uh, that I discarded and uh, other background essays. And um, it's uh, it's certainly much less than $500. My <laughs> recollection is it's $60. It's signed, and there's, but, uh, you know, there's only 552 copies because of the it's for the collector's market. And then they did a, a special edition with even more extras for my novelization for Rambo First Blood Part Two, And Rambo Three comes out in a month or two, uh, the novelization, again from Gauntlet, with even more extras. Really, I mean, as, the, as it went on, I was able to find more things to add. So if the, for a true collector, uh, these books are, are priceless. Well, that's terrific. I'm sure several of our listeners are going to want to check that out for sure. Well, let's talk about you as the creator. I'm fascinated about your life and, and getting to find out a little bit more through your book, Stars in My Eyes, My Love Affair with Books, Movies, and Music. And I think that's a wonderful way to, to maybe get a little bit into your head and, and where you've been. Uh, you talk about how at the age of 17 you were fired from working on a construction project and you walked home in despair only yes. to turn on the television to see Rod Serling's pattern. Now, listeners will know Rod Serling because we've talked about the Twilight Zone on the show before, but Rod Serling is sort of a hero of mine. Uh, he actually taught just down the road from where I live here in Ohio at Antioch College in Yellow Springs. And oh, so, really? Yeah, so he's a bit of an icon in our area for sure, as he is to the whole world. Uh, but I would love to hear how yes. Rod Serling's movie patterns affected you at that time in your life. Yeah, it's it's and it's worth just doing a little thing about Rod. I didn't meet him, but you know, when you admire a writer so much, often you refer to him by his first name or her first name. Um, uh, Rod Rod Serling got his start in radio after the Second World War, and then migrated over to writing scripts for television, for live television, in the 1950s, uh, and uh, particularly for shows such as uh, Playhouse 90. And uh, his, he, he was, he's the, he has the record for the number of Emmys that a writer won. And uh, titles like Requiem for a Heavyweight, uh, The Velvet Alley, um, and, the, uh, and, 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 and Patterns, particularly Patterns. Patterns was really put him on the map. And mm. at first it was a live program and then it was a film. Now, I was 17. And uh, I was, I'm somewhat precocious, I guess, because I loved watching those live dramas. That I'm, I'm old enough to, you know, been a child of the 50s. And, and I loved those dramas, and I'd seen a lot of his work, and I knew who he was. But there I was. My mother, my mother was, 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 had a, uh, a complex about poverty. She'd been very poor. And she was always talking about we don't have enough money and we have to work harder and we have to do this. And she had me, you know, doing a lot of odd jobs uh, after school, setting up pins in bowling alleys before they were automated and things wow. like that. And uh, one of the jobs I had was working on construction in the summer. I was in high school, and I was awful at it. I was, I'm not a big guy. And, and, you know, they had me doing stuff that, you know, was, was simply beyond my physical capability. And um, so I, I worked I, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday they fired me. Uh, and they deserved to. I mean, it, I, was, I was a bad construction worker. And... So I remember at 3 o'clock in the afternoon trudging home thinking what I was going to tell my mother. You know, oh, my God, you lost your job, that kind of thing. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat down in front of the television, and in those days, um, the, some of the there were only three networks, and they ran movies often in the afternoon. So in one of those moments that you know changes a life, I the, the movie Patterns came on. Now, Patterns is not science fiction. It's not like The Twilight Zone. It's the story of an idealistic um, man who goes into a major business corporation, and as he works his way up, he sees the cost that the man who runs the corporation uh, demands from the people who works for the, uh, for him, and you know they're 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 dying from heart attacks, and they have marriage problems, and they're drinking too much, and and he you know he's seeing you know the the cruelty of the man who runs the business, and uh, and but as, you know as he rises through the corporation, he develops a, a mania for bringing this guy down. So finally, he maneuvers himself through all the other uh, complexities of this corporation until finally he's within reach of of of, of taking this guy uh, out of out of his leadership role of getting him fired. And the guy who runs the corporation looks at him and almost cheers and says, "You got it. That's how it's supposed to work. I fought my way up here." I'm doing everything for this corporation. The corporation is all that matters. And if you can bring me down, that means that you're the better person to run this corporation. Uh, it's almost like running for the White House. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I had this. In fact, there's a, a, a wonderful movie by, um, oh, I can't think. It's called The Best Man, and the writer will come to me, um, uh, about how, about uh, uh, conventions for uh, political parties and how they choose. Um, uh, it's not a documentary; it's a drama about how they choose uh, the guy to do it. And and the the idealistic guy loses uh, to a man who's very practical and conniving. And and the uh, and the big speech at the end is that the best man uh, will win, not because he's idealistic, but because he knows the system. Uh, and you know, very cynical. Uh, story. Anyhow, in 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 patterns, I suddenly, you know, the, the the idea of a man rising through the corporation while somebody else descends. I said, oh my God, uh, it's got a structure. It was the first time I realized that a story could have a structure, and the fact the title itself, patterns, uh, you know, indicates what what you know the point of the story is, and. So I uh, I was just overwhelmed, um, and I you know I had been toying with the idea of being a writer, and and you know I had this epiphany about what could be said in a story and how you would say it, uh, and um, and you know I watched then I always always looked at what Serling was had done, and of course everybody talks about the Twilight Zone, but you know that's pretty obvious. But uh, some people don't know is sure. that he also did the the adaptation for Seven Days in May, which is one of the great political dramas with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and that he wrote westerns, um, uh, a western called Inherit the Wind, which is pretty good, and also a western television series with Lloyd Bridges called The Loner, which is finally now available on DVD. And um, a, couple, a year ago, I had the chance to meet his daughter, who has published a, a 
a, a biography of him and a kind of a memoir at the same time about her relationship with him. And uh, it's just a terrific book. And I, I have a lot of a lot of stuff about uh, Serling. He, he 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 made a difference. Well, that's fantastic, and I, I think that's one of the things. Even when he was doing Twilight Zone or, or writing the script for, uh, like Planet of the Apes and things like that, even yes, uh, I think he used sci-fi in such a way that the stories really weren't about the sci-fi. There was always this deeper social issue that was going on that I I just found fascinating. And as I've gotten older. And I've really appreciated uh, his stories like The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street that was on Twilight yeah. Zone, which I feel like is sure. so relevant for our current culture right now. And oh, absolutely. Been, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, and he knew you know, he had trouble with uh, censors when he was doing contemporary stories. I mean, they just gutted the hell out of some of his uh, contemporary dramas and the social points he was making. And then he found that if he simply switched to science fiction, and did this alternate universe, he could make the very same points and the, and the censors wouldn't know what the hell he was saying. Yeah. Or similarly on his Western The Loner, you know, a whole lot of social uh, uh, ideas, um, but, you know, because it's in the Old West, it's not threatening to anybody. So um, he, he, had a, uh, he, had a, he was clever about how he made his points. Sure, just just genius stuff. Well, I love that we got to talk a little bit about Rod Serling because I I always enjoy. It seems like there's so much that I'm continually learning about him. And uh, t- since you're on a lot of podcasts, you may know about this already. Uh, but the comedian Dana Gould uh, also has a podcast uh, called the Dana Gould Hour, and he has quite a few episodes that he's dedicated to Rod Serling and telling the story oh, of Rod know. Serling. Yeah, good stuff. So if you ever have a chance, he did a. He, another of his live shows was called The Comedian with Mickey Rooney, mm. and it's supposedly loosely based on Sid Caesar. Um, and uh, and you know the 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 where you have a, a, a emotionally troubled nationally known comedian running a weekly television show, and what he does to his staff in order to make sure that he looks good on the air. Uh, and, you know, in a way, it's a little bit like patterns. There's that, you know, that obsessiveness. That, and that a lot of these are available. I, I, they're uh, not necessarily um, in, like, a, a live television shows by Rod Serling, but if one goes to, like, the golden age of television, uh, if you Google that, you'll find collections in which uh, uh, patterns, the live version, uh, Requiem for a Heavyweight, uh, and a couple of other of his classic uh, dramas um, are, um, uh, you know, available. So uh, it's it's worth searching them out. That's that's great. That's wonderful information to know. Well, I, I don't want to run out of time, and we'll see how much we can get into, but we talk a lot about music on this podcast, and I don't know how often you get asked about music, so I think I want to go straight there and maybe ask you a, a Sinatra question, because I know you're yeah. a big fan. And uh, tell us a little bit about the way that the man and his music affected you and, and kind of influenced you in your art as a writer. Well, the, the, uh, my first choice... Um, of a profession was to be, I wanted to be a songwriter arranger. Uh, and that wasn't uncommon back in the 50s and 60s. It still isn't today, although you can't make any money at it anymore. But um, the, uh, I, I figured that 
I, I have a first principle. If you're going to try to do something, you might as well learn about it so you do it right. <laughs> so I managed to find a classical, somebody who trained people in classical music. Uh, and I said, you know, I wanted to do popular music and popular arranging um, at a time when, you know, arranging was more than just, you know, working a keyboard. Sure. And uh, so this guy helped me. I was 15 at the time. And I... Um, I went through musical theory, harmony, counterpoint, and orchestration in a little under two years. Uh, and it was kind of a prodigy. Uh, this guy was really impressed, and he thought eventually I'd take over his, uh, his practice. And, uh, but I, I worked so hard at it that I burned myself out, and, and I, I finally stopped, and I became a writer instead. But um, Nelson Riddle's work for Frank Sinatra uh, 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 just a brilliant arranger, particularly uh, I, I've Got You Under My Skin, um, really inspired me. He was the guy that I'd like to be. And uh, so uh, what I learned from music in terms of writing was structure uh, in, in, in a twofold way. One was Frank uh, Sinatra always told Nelson that he wanted a, a build-up in his songs. Uh, too many songs sound the same from start to end, but he, he liked to start quiet and build and build and build and you know get into a hell of a hell of a climax in, in the song. And uh, not bad, uh, you know, lesson for a storyteller. Sure. Um, but in addition, uh, Nelson was known for uh, building with a strong bass line and then moving up into uh, upper regions with flutes and violins and uh, very, very high harps, very high sounds that, that sort of floated above the, the bass sounds. And um, what what I learned from that was this uh, structure in a different way that um, that uh, a a book a story has uh, uh, what we could call the melody line, um, but that it's sustained by undercurrents and overtones uh, that you can put in to control readers in ways they don't know that they are being controlled. Uh, and uh, so I I learned a lot about that from. Uh, uh, from Nelson, and then from Nelson uh, Riddle, I, you know, you just automatically go into Sinatra, and, and he is arguably the greatest interpretive singer of the 20th century in English, at least. I, I don't, I can't speak for other languages, but um, Frank, you know, did it in a way that no one has ever equaled. His voice was not always the best, but his interpretation was always intelligent and spot on, and uh, it was. You know, as I did in in this book we're talking about, um, uh, uh, Stars in My Eyes, My Love Affair with Books, Movies, and Music. The longest piece is about Sinatra. It's almost a small book about him, and uh, I uh, and I also have a piece about Nelson Riddle in it as well, and about Bobby Darin. Uh, uh, he didn't influence me musically or as a writer, but uh, he was, you know, he was another one of those unique. Um, uh, singers that uh, how they happen is it's impossible to know um, and uh, I just parenthetically the, this this book the stars in my eyes is another example of what small presses can do uh, it's another gauntlet press publication mm -hmm. only 500 copies uh, signed uh, gorgeous hardback um, collector's item and uh, uh, I mean, truthfully, there is no market in a in a major New York sense for essays about books, movies, and uh, music. There just isn't. Um, the people, uh, for some reason, don't 
um, care to look into the background about some of the movies and books and, and music that they admire. Uh, so, but Gauntlet fills that uh, that need and uh, did a did a, just a wonderful job on it. And uh, it's a very unique book. And uh, but it's available as is with the First Blood and Rambo two and three that I mentioned only only from them. Yeah, well, Gauntlet Press. We do definitely want to send our listeners to check that out, and I think they're going to find a lot of great things there. You can even find books that are that are signed by you, so that's a, a an extra treat. So that's that's yeah. really great. Well, let's see. We have just about five minutes left, so I want to uh, see what should we hit on next here. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about uh, the, your thoughts on Steve McQueen. Yeah, well, Steve McQueen, yeah, he's one of the uh, people I wrote about, along with John Wayne and Marilyn Monroe, uh, iconic people. And, you know, people who had, um, at least in McQueen's case, uh, it's called Steve McQueen, the tough guy with the grand grin. Hmm. Um, and McQueen was a terribly tortured person. You know, he, he was known as the king of cool. Uh, but that was an act. In, in private, he was he was driven and cruel and uh uh, you know, he, he'd had a terrible upbringing. Uh, he'd been abandoned, and he was bouncing around the country, and and he served time in a in a juvenile correctional facility, uh, and wound up in New York trying acting simply to get girls. And uh, and but he had something that uh, instructors thought was was important, and gradually he learned how to be a movie star. Uh, he. He may be the most perfect movie star we ever had because more than almost any other actor I can think of, he knew what to do in front of a camera. It's like it was like a camera was like another machine, like a car or what have you that, that he admired. And you know when he's handling guns or you know he's uh, vehicles or being in front of that camera, he knew what to do in a way that uh, I can't. Uh, uh, Richard Crenna once said to me that. He'd only in his long career had only worked with two actors that really knew what to do in front of the camera in terms of props and relating to the camera, uh, and that they were Sylvester Stallone and Steve McQueen. And uh, I mean, you look at uh, you look at um, it's a cruel scene, but it's so typical of what McQueen would do in in the Cincinnati Kid. He has a scene with um, with Tuesday Weld, and it's her scene. They're in a in a on a dive and a bar of sorts and she's um she's pouring out her heart about her background and how sad her life has been and McQueen sits there and listens and it's her scene uh, but, but McQueen would always think how can I take the scene from everybody so all the while she is listening to him he is moving his finger around the top of the rim of his glass and you, mm. that's all you know in the scene that's all you see uh, he, he, he later when he's working with Edward G. Robinson, uh, Robinson is making some tea. I forget they're making some coffee or what have you. And, and you know, and, and McQueen's there with this this icon. And uh, what does McQueen do? He cuts a, a a lemon in half and bites into it without puckering his lips or showing the sour taste <laughs> to show how tough he is in front of um, in front of Robinson. And, I mean, the, the inventiveness here, it's like McQueen, you just have the sense that every night before he went to bed, uh, you know, he's got to go to the studio the next day, he's looking at these scenes, and how can I upstage these guys uh, and, and do it in a way that's acceptable for the story? So watching a Steve McQueen movie, 
uh, is just a joy, even if it's not such a good movie, uh, because of what he does to 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 make the camera center on him in in the Magnificent Seven, uh, the the great stories about his hat. He only has about twelve lines, uh, but he has his hat, and whenever he and anybody's talking to him, he's playing with the goddamned hat, and and that's all you notice in the movie is Steve McQueen and his hat. Uh, and Yul Brynner, in fact, got so annoyed that he hired a guy to watch McQueen, because McQueen will be, Brynner's making a speech, and McQueen's playing with his hat in the background. And the guy would step forward and say, Yul, he's doing it with the hat again. And then Yul would go crazy, and then, you know, they'd do the scene again. But McQueen would still manage to do something. The famous scene where he and Yul Brynner get on a, a hearse, to drive uh, the body of an Indian up to Boot Hill when the whole town doesn't want the Indian buried there. And so uh, we get Yule Brenner, who's, you know, uh, who's the star, ostensibly, and he gets up on the hearse, and he lights a cigar and waves the match and blows some smoke out, and he thinks he's really got the camera. And McQueen gets up, opens the shotgun, takes out one shell, shakes it, rattle, rattle, puts it in, takes out another shell and shakes it, rattle, rattle, closes the shotgun, takes his hat off, and then checks where the sun is, puts his hat back on and says, all right, I'm ready to go. And and Brenner is looking at him like he could jump across the, the hearse and strangle him. <laughs> and that that's in the movie. You can see the absolute look of hate that you know, Brenner has given him, knowing the scene's being taken from him, and he can't do anything about it. So wow. uh, that that's the joy of watching uh, McQueen's movies. And, and the, the essay uh, in Stars in My Eyes, a very long one, um, you know, it's again a small book about about McQueen, and yeah. you know he 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 went crazy near the end of his career from drugs and and uh, you know uh, uh, and a, he 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 was not well balanced psychologically and mm. kind of ruined his life uh, as a consequence. It's a his life story is a very sad one. That's too bad, but he he really was quite a fascinating actor to watch, and I think it's interesting the way that the name has carried on a bit. I I have a four-year-old son at home, and we watched the the Pixar Disney movie Cars, and it's not a mistake yeah. that that car in the film, the main character, is Lightning McQueen, yeah. you know? And yeah, yeah, so we're sure. we're constantly bringing up the name McQueen in our house on day after day basis. Well, he, he uh, his, you know, his first wife was a Broadway performer, uh, Neil Adams. She had been in the Broadway production of uh, The Pajama Game. Hmm. She was a singer-dancer. She was a star. Um, and uh, she taught him how to move. Uh, she, in effect, gave him private dance lessons. And so that particularly in the action sequences, he would move with the grace of a dancer. And they worked on that a lot. And that's one reason why they, that he did uh, Want a Dead or Alive, because you know, once a week uh, they had film that uh, uh, Neil, uh, Neil and he could watch um, and see how they could make him move better. Uh, and if you look at him in um, uh, Nevada Smith, he's wearing moccasins, uh, and he's assuming the ballet uh, dancer at rest pose a lot. Hmm. Uh, they look like ballet shoes. And then, you know, when the knife fight with Marty, uh, oh, come on. 
uh, Martin Landau uh, in the in the middle of the movie where McQueen is jumping from post to post in the corral while uh, Landau is waving the knife at him, and and McQueen's throwing up his arms. It's in it's ballet. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you, you wouldn't, you know, it's not, it's not overtly so, but it's ballet, yeah. and uh, I mean, you know, his his whole key was to to somehow bring uh, a dancer's grace to action, and uh, because of his first wife, and you know, things went to hell uh, after he after she essentially divorced him hmm. uh, because of this, uh, you know, serial uh, adultery um, and uh, general cruelty and. Um, and you know his career never really recovered. Although he made some, you know, he made the getaway after the divorce and the towering inferno after the divorce. But you know there wasn't any center there really to hmm. for him to go, you know, into what should have been a good character actor in his 60s and 70s. But God bless him, he got uh, cancer. Mm, man. Well, David, our time, unfortunately, has has just flown by. It's been great to get to talk to you, and we're going to make sure and put up all the links to your site at davidmorell.net and to Gauntlet Press, where people can look for the book and find uh, copies that are signed by you, Stars in My Eyes, My Love Affair with Books, Movies, and Music. Uh, It has been a real pleasure to have you again on the Voices in My Head podcast. I wish you all the best, and we are always excited when you have a, another project coming out so I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime I'm always doing something but Gauntlet Press is uh, these books are really remarkable and uh, you know as I said they're rare and they will eventually have a great collectible value so alright thank you All right. nice chatting with you nice chatting with you too I hope you have a wonderful evening and you take care okay. of yourself Bye- thank you bye bye thank you for joining me here this week on the Voices in My Head podcast I hope you'll visit me on my website at rickleyjames.com, follow me on Twitter at rickleyjames, like my artist page on Facebook at facebook.com slash rickleyjames, and keep up to date on what I'm writing at my author page on amazon.com. Make sure to follow my calendar on the website, and if you would like to have me come to your town to do a concert, a speaking engagement, or a book event, you can book me through my website by clicking on the link for Pair Booking Agency. That's P-A-R-E Booking. And finally, it would mean the world to me if you were to leave me a review of this podcast on iTunes. The more positive reviews that we receive, the more visible this podcast is on the internet. And now the benediction. May the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead, strengthen your inner being for every good work. And may the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, rest upon you and dwell within you this day and forevermore. Amen.